don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And uh, if you've been enjoying the We Croak podcast, I encourage you to head over to the We Croak podcast Patreon, show us some love. It definitely helps uh, motivate us, get out more great episodes. Uh, some other updates to know about is there's now a daily review tool uh, for Leap in iOS and the We Croak app. So check that out. It's uh, based on a stoic exercise of looking at your day and seeing how well you lived and uh, you know, living a life that's better and more meaningful over time, powered by um, looking at death and looking honestly at our lives more. Uh, I've got a very special episode for you today. Uh, we have the journalist Katie Engelhart. She just wrote a book called The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die. And I must say that in the last several years, I have read so many books on death and dying and the world around it. Uh, and I have a whole library of books that people send me and that uh, I've found, and uh, I have never felt so challenged or uncomfortable reading a book because it's just one of those cases where what the book is about, there are no easy answers. And it really underlines um, you know, who we are as a people, who we are as a society, and the problems. And what she does is she follows the stories of people in the right to die movement who, you know, for whatever reason, um, usually age, sickness, um, things like that, uh, want to end their lives. And they're, they're not suicidal in the, sense, the traditional sense, like they don't believe they are, or depressed, they're just done. And they think it's a rational choice. And the journalist, uh, Katie, doesn't take a side here. She just tells their stories. And, um, my God, I know less about what I think about the issue than before I opened the book. So uh, I think really you want to hear from her about these stories more than me. So here we go. Here's the conversation. I hope you like it. Katie Engelhart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So I have read so many books about death and dying and palliative care and hospice care and the philosophy of death. Um, I've got a whole library behind me and I don't think I've ever been as unnerved, challenged, um, uncomfortable, uh, and engrossed, I must say. It, it's a bit of a page turner in the way it tells stories as by, uh, your book, The Inevitable. And I still have no idea, you know, if I had to come down on aside on an issue, on the issue it takes up, which is um, the right to die movement, I don't know where I am. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about your book and the project before we, we dive in. So my book is a narrative journalistic account of assisted dying. Um, and my goal was to to really be exploring some of the ethical issues around assisted death through individual stories. I start with a, a story that readers might be more familiar with. I attended the death of an 89-year-old man in California 
a state where medical aid in dying is legal. Um, and so I watched this man who was very sick with prostate cancer end his life with his family's support a few days or weeks earlier than his natural death might have occurred. Um, that's the starting point for my book. But over the course of, of the book, I introduce readers to people who are ending their lives without the help of the medical system, the legal system, away from doctor's offices and polite conversation, sometimes with assistance from underground networks of activists who work in this space. I'm sure we'll get to that later. And my goal in writing the book was to find studies that challenge me. I have never worked on a project like this, one where I ended up, you know, five years after starting, feeling less certain about things than when I began. Um, and, and so I introduce readers to uh, a cast of characters, you know, a woman who wants to die because she doesn't want to grow old, someone who wants to die before her dementia takes her mind, a young man with mental illness who believes his suffering is as serious as um, as anyone with who has physical illness and who wants help in dying. Um, and and eventually, you know, my book asks bigger questions about how we decide who who deserves a peaceful death? Who deserves control and choice at the end of life? So the premise of your book, let's just set the parameters for one second, is that there are a few states where assisted dying is legal, but on very tamped down terms of you need a diagnosis that is incurable and lethal within six months, usually, for all of them, correct? That's right. About 20% of Americans live in states with, um, with aid and dying laws. So we have fairly strict, uh, you know, resistance to aid and dying laws and legality. Mm -hmm. And because it's illegal, that has created, I guess, a black market, if you will, mm -hmm. of people whose lives they believe have become not worth living because of the indignities and discomforts, pain of age. Um, incurable suffering diseases such as MS, mm -hmm. um, even mental illness in some cases where people are, are finding their own way and you uh, found and covered a number of those people. Yeah, that's right. You know, I was, I think, surprised to find these sorts of underground clandestine groups in existence. And in retrospect, I think I shouldn't have been surprised. Um, you know, I, I always say that I, I hate to make any kind of parallel between the right to die movement and the abortion movement. Um, that's just bringing me in the direction I don't want to go in. But one point I think is relevant here is that we know in the years before Roe v. Wade, there were groups and individuals who offered safe abortion access to women. There were groups like the Jane Collective, which did so in a, in a highly organized way. And there are groups that exist in the end of life space. Um, who have a similar function, and some of them are are quite bureaucratic organizations. Uh, there's one that I, I followed for years that exists in the United States. There are people across the United States who teach people how to end their lives, sometimes sit with them and hold their hands while they do it. Some groups are fuzzier, so they exist online and, you know, help introduce people to 
to drug dealers or different sorts of substances. The point is that these groups exist and people are finding them. Within, I think, six months of starting my reporting, when I was living in Europe, I met several people, um, you know, women in their 80s, who out of desperation had taught themselves how to set up encrypted email accounts and eventually were able to procure drugs from dealers in places like Mexico and China. I mean, I thought this stuff was stranger than fiction. And, and that's kind of where I began my journey. I spent five years following a lot of those individuals. Yeah, let's start there, talking about the story of Avril. Um, as you said, she was a woman in her 80s dealing with the indignities of age. So can you just describe for us sort of her situation when she decided to um, take matters into her own hands and end her life? Yeah, Avril was a, a woman I connected with in England in her 80s. And she she was someone who had really, really loved her life. She was a brilliant woman, a retired professor. She taught at Oxford and Cambridge. She was a specialist in medieval English uh, art. You know, she she read old English. She wrote dull academic papers about Chaucer and, and other poets. And um, and she decided at some point in a sort of mathematical way that the disadvantages of living were outweighing the benefits of living. So she wasn't dying of any particular thing. In fact, Avril said she she longed for a cancer diagnosis. She envied people who had a terminal disease. Instead, she had this constellation of symptoms. She was dying from what we would euphemistically call old age. She had neuropathy in her feet. She had trouble hearing. She had trouble with her eyesight. She had trouble with incontinence. And all these things together, she felt were um, were making her life unbearable. And she had recently got to that point. She'd also seen people grow very old and had no interest in joining them um, and kind of drifting passively from treatment to treatment and, and declining more and more. And Avril decided um, she would take matters into her own hands, as she said. She was unusual in that she told everyone. Um, she told her friends. She told her few family members. She told her gardener and his wife. She told everyone what she planned to do because she didn't want anyone to think later that she had committed suicide in a way that we're familiar to understanding it. She didn't want people to think she'd acted out of despair or on impulse. She wanted people to know that she'd really made a choice. Um, so Avril is one of those women I mentioned who taught herself how to use encrypted email, who connected with right to die activists. She ordered substances online. And I followed her through this kind of wild tale in which police tried to intercept her drug shipment and, um, you know, her, her life was kind of upended in a lot of ways, but eventually Avril did take her life. Um, she's one of several people whose, whose deaths I followed, whose deaths I, I knew about in advance and followed through to the end. So in England, where Avril lived, suicide is not illegal, but um, I guess the English equivalent of DEA agents showed up at her door demanding mm -hmm. the drugs, and she kind of outwitted them because she had actually two shipments, not one, which was <laughs> a wild yeah. part of the story. Yeah, you know, it was, and and this is, I think, kind of, um, her case, her case taught me a lot, you know, and, and I think taught, 
talked to his agents a lot. So she had law enforcement and um, social workers and psychiatrists show up at her house. Um, they had somehow received word that she had ordered this shipment of drugs. And they insisted on performing what they called a wellness check, which involved like a psychiatric assessment. And essentially they were deciding whether or not to take her into um, to some kind of psychiatric hold. And I could see because I, I, I filed freedom of information requests and got a hold of the doctor's notes from that night. Um, and you could see the doctor struggling because she was suicidal in their view but she didn't seem irrational and she didn't seem depressed. They assessed her and could find no sign of depression and so she confused them. And so they wrote in their notes, this is a very difficult situation, but ultimately there was nothing they could do to intervene because, you know, suicide is legal and she didn't demonstrate herself to be impaired in any way. So if Afro had been in the Netherlands, uh, she might've had a different, pathway to what she wanted. Can you talk a little bit about the Dutch concept of a completed life? Mm -hmm. So the Netherlands has probably the most expansive right to die legislation in the world. And the effect is that 4% of deaths in the Netherlands are now physician assisted. So really everyone in the country knows someone who has done this. And more than that, I think Dutch people often Describe this law to these laws to me as a sign of Dutch enlightenment, like somehow the you know people in the Netherlands understand something about life and death that the rest of the world hasn't caught wise of. Um, but in certain situations, someone like Avril could qualify for a physician assisted death in the Netherlands on the grounds that they have this, as I said, a constellation of symptoms that make their lives unbearable. So unlike laws in the United States, in the Netherlands, a person doesn't have to be terminally ill and within months of a natural death. In the United States, it's really people with terminal cancer who use these laws for the most part. Um, the Netherlands has a more expansive view, and so a person might decide that they have had a so-called completed life, um, but that they want it to end. And Dutch doctors will, in some cases, facilitate that. And in fact, there are, you know, sort of advocate groups that have popped up in a number of countries who are arguing for the same. There's a group in England called, what are they called? The Society for Old Age Rational Suicide. And in their view, you know, anyone above a certain age, even if it's quite high, even if it's something like 90, should just be allowed help to die um, if they want to. Um, but of course, I, I think most countries are, are not even close to even considering a law like that. So... Avril's concerns at the end of life, because you interviewed her extensively, were maybe not what you would expect from someone ending their life. She was very concerned about logistics, what would happen to her body if uh, there would be a mess, um, mm -hmm. what would happen to the garden. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about your thoughts on sort of where she was mentally and, and how it made sense yeah. to you? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is, you know, one mistake I think people make is to assume that right to die laws are sort of symbolic. In other words, people can kill themselves. Um, they do. And so what is the point of these laws? They could just do it anyway. And what I really found in my work was it's not that simple. Many attempts at life ending fail. 
often they end and fail painfully. Also, people don't always know how to end their lives in in foolproof ways, in ways they know will work and that will be painless for them. Sometimes they can't get a hold of the right poison or pill. Sometimes they they could, but they don't want to break the law because they've never broken the law before, and, and, and why should they start now? Sometimes they're afraid to die alone. And so these laws are important because people are looking for kind of a, a, a normal, guided, medical sort of death. Um, they want help. And so Avril was incredibly anxious about the logistics. She worried that the drugs she was ordering would have impurities in them. She worried that her body would be left for days to to foul her house after she was gone, a house that she loved. Um, and so, you know, she spent a, a lot of time and it took a lot of her mind space in her final weeks to sort of plan exactly how things would go hour by hour. And she was meticulous. This is a woman who had controlled every aspect of her life. She left a note explaining that there was cleaning fluid under the counter and would would people be so kind as to wipe up the bathtub after, you know, she'd been taken away so that, you know, the house would, would be clean when visitors came over. And I think this was just her way of exerting her autonomy which is what she wanted. She was obsessed with the idea of being in control and that involved really sketching out exactly how those final hours and and the the hours after her death would go. Um, So this is not unusual at all. I think there's, you know, people who choose this path are often incredibly anxious about how things will unfold and they wish deeply that they could just ask their doctor to help them. As someone who knew her and reported and saw the notes um, do you think she had a, a, a quote unquote good death? Hmm. I don't really know what <laughs> a good death looks like, but I think she avoided what she wanted to avoid. And for her, the calculation was complicated. I mean, she, she did love life. She had friends who adored her. She was, um, one anecdote I like came from a colleague. She was so passionate about art that just seeing different colors could make her cry because she would find them so beautiful. And she got to this very specific point where, you know, going to the swimming pool was hard, you know, so hard that she couldn't really enjoy her swim and couldn't keep track of laps. And that signaled to her that it was time to go. Um, so I think she avoided the the downfall that she feared. Um, a lot of older people want to avoid a situation where they'll be relocated. They'll end up in a, in a shitty nursing home bed somewhere. Um, for a lot of people, and, and Avril too, um, this sounds kind of strange, but a, a lot of weight is placed on bowel and bladder control. I mean, when I started this work, I kept hearing people talk about how they wanted dignity when they died. They wanted dignified deaths. And I, and I kept asking them what they meant by dignity because I expected something really lofty and <laughs> esoteric. I expected dying people who... Uh, who had reflected on their mortality to come up with these complicated ideas about what dignity meant in their own cases. And often it, it, it came down to when I need someone to help me in the bathroom, my life's undignified. If I have an accident, my life's undignified. Um, I think we can ask questions about why people feel um, that we're, that needing help at the end of life is so undignified. But, but really for a lot of people, it comes down to just that. Yeah, that one actually goes back like 
millennia. If you look at longevity practices in yoga, they talk about mm -hmm. uh, mobility, which is being able to move and get around, which you can have misgivings about. You can have a great life, immobile, but it's what they talk about. Um, mm -hmm. Dignity, which is specifically sphincter control. <laughs> yeah. And sanity, that those are the three things that huh. they believe you need for um, to live well a long time. And that, that's what a lot of the practices are, are built around. So huh. people have worried about those things a really long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I get it. Um, the, I think it grosses most of us out to think of someone else wiping our butts. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, a lot of older people who I spoke to, and and certainly I, I, I follow younger people in the book, but for a lot of the older people, um, they've seen friends and family members die in these kind of drawn out, confusing ways where n no choices were made specifically, but someone just kind of went from treatment to treatment and took antibiotics and ag maybe agreed to this small procedure. And all of a sudden they kind of lived beyond what Avril would call her expiry date. Um, and, you know, some people just don't want it. They see advanced age not as this prize that they've managed to earn somehow, um, but as a curse that they want to cast away. Um, there's one right-to-die activist who Avril connected with, and he sometimes tells people life is a gift, but um, things are only gifts if you can throw it away. If you can't throw something away, it's not a gift, it's a burden. Yeah, they, they talk about some of these questions in like palliative care circles, where if you get a lethal cancer diagnosis, um, you know, if you have the right kind of doctor, they can look at it and say, well, if, you know, there are some heroic measures that can be taken that could probably extend your life a long time. But if we're being honest, you'll probably end up on a life trajectory of what they call the dwindles which is a much longer and sort of time trajectory, but with much lower uh, quality of life for that period. Or you can choose to abstain from the chemotherapy or whatever it is, have a much shorter life, but until the end and the final drop off, um, a much higher quality of life. And so that gives, they allow people to have autonomy and choose the treatment sort of options or not doing it that you know they want. And that's considered um, you know, best coming into best practice today in medicine today. But here you bring up this more awkward phase where no no one perhaps has a final diagnosis. They're just old and in incredible pain and not enjoying their life anymore and headed toward the dwindles and they don't want it. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and that raises two, two other important points, I, I think. Um, you know, the first is that right-to-die laws are often seen as extremely radical. Um, both from a medical and sort of philosophical standpoint. But doctors already do lots of things to speed up or slow down a person's dying. I mean, with the patient autonomy movement, we've seen people increasingly exercise their right to decline care. Uh, uh, that, that hypothetical cancer patient you mentioned could sit with her doctor and decide over the course of 20 minutes that she's not going to continue chemotherapy because it's too tiring and she would rather just enjoy the time with her, the remaining time with her family. That's a conversation. It takes place between doctor and patient. It's done in a few minutes and 
the patient goes home. But if the woman just wanted to have things end in two weeks instead of waiting out those final two months, well, now we've got a whole set of of laws that may or may not exist and uh, witness statements and a bunch of paperwork and a bunch of eligibility criteria, waiting periods. Um, So I think we tend to see assisted death as existing in this completely other space, but really we should see it as more on the continuum of palliative care. Um, And then I think also, you know, when I started researching this subject, I thought right to die laws as they exist in places like Oregon or California were radical pieces of legislation until I realized that most people who use them are almost dead anyway. I mean, they often have cancer. They're often within days or weeks of dying or at least slipping into a kind of um, sedative state where where they'll be dead to the world anyway. Um, they're not philosophically radical. It's cases like Avril that really test our concept of, um, you know, who who deserves help and who deserves choice when it comes to deciding on this final timeline. So let's just, before we move on to some of the other cases, because you bring that up, like, what do you see as the difference between palliative sedation and right to die cases? Sometimes it's very fuzzy. <laughs> So palliative sedation, just, um, you know, as many of your listeners know, I'm sure, just refers to a normal process whereby doctors are offering patients at the end of their lives drugs to decrease pain. Um, And a side effect of those drugs is that they sometimes sedate a patient. The idea is to reduce pain. The known side effect is sedation. Um, And the idea is doctors will administer these drugs slowly so a patient's getting just as much as is required and and no more. They're titrated. Some doctors will do what's called palliative sedation to unconsciousness in more extreme situations when someone's in extreme pain or sometimes even um, emotional anguish. And in these cases, doctors will administer enough pain-relieving drugs that a person is made unconscious and will never regain consciousness. So is not dead, but is dead to the world. Um, it is dead from his or her perspective. Uh, and so we can see the line is very thin. Now, what's the difference? Well, palliative care physicians will say um, it has to do with intent. Um, the intent is not to sedate the patient. The intent is not to hasten the patient's death. Um, because once a patient's unconscious, they'll die of dehydration or kidney failure soon enough. If, um, the intent is just to relieve the pain. And I think for some doctors, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a really clear cutoff. And for others, it is a kind of bullshit criteria. And that at best, it's prioritizing the intention of doctors rather than the experience of patients. Um, I asked the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, how common is palliative sedation? And they estimated their estimate was something like it occurs in between five and 50% of all deaths. I mean, they have no idea. Yeah. They have no idea. And it's because, first of all, it varies from hospital to hospital. Palliative care physicians have told me, you know, it, it might just be that a, a senior doctor in one hospital system uses a lot of this kind of medication and encourages it. And so there's this culture of it. And in others, there's not. Um, so there's variation. And hospitals aren't required to submit any records 
sometimes families don't even know exactly what happened. They know some drugs were administered and the person fell asleep, but they're sort of confused about when it happened and, and why and what was the intention. Um, so that's the kind of Wild West. Uh, right to die laws are require a huge amount of paperwork and recording and reporting to the state. Um, and so we know a lot more about how those deaths occur. Yeah, it occurred to me, I mean, we're talking about death, there's just so much euphemism and people not wanting to, to look at it of getting what they need. Like, even if you look at like a life insurance website, which is all about death, it will, most of the time we'll never say death on the website anywhere, which mm-hmm. as someone who likes speaking honestly and frankly about things still blows my mind. But it occurred to me, you know, I was reading about your section on palliative sedation and how it compares to, you know, right to die laws in the United States, where it's usually someone who's going to die anyway very soon, that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this is one is a euphemism for the other in a lot of ways, that it is the socially acceptable euphemism for um, for someone who's in too much pain to continue. Yeah, but there are, you know, there's, there's uncertainty in how palliative sedation will work. So first of all, for a patient to get this kind of medication, they need to be very close to the end and really suffering and, and maybe slipping in and out of consciousness on their own. Um, there's also the issue of, as I said, variability. So some doctors do end-of-life sedation in a different way than other doctors do. And patients don't really have, you know, there's no like kind of list of what services a doctor is going to provide at different hospitals and at different times that a patient's sometimes has no idea what his or her doctor will be willing to do. Um, and it's up to the doctor. I mean, some doctors told me they don't even ask permission before offering palliative sedation. They just consider it a standard of care that doesn't require consent from anyone at all. Um, so, you know, I think when we're talking about patient choice, uh, there's often not a lot that a patient can figure out or plan for in advance if they don't know what their doctor is going to offer them. Right, right. So we could talk about that issue for a long time, but I actually want to move on a little bit because Mm -hmm. we go into even more uncomfortable territory with some of the subsequent stories in this book, Mm -hmm. starting, at least for me, my discomfort reading it with with Maya, who was Mm. a young woman uh, with MS um, and reached the sort of progressive stage, the hardest stage of MS early Mm -hmm. in life. Can you introduce the story of Maya? Yes, so she um, was a woman I met in her 30s who lived in New Mexico, as you said, had multiple sclerosis and was declining, although... I mean, doctors told her she could live for decades more with this disease. So she wasn't dying imminently, but became sort of obsessed. I mean, obsessed in her in her words, too, with her death and with planning it. Um, and she spent a huge amount of time connecting with right to die organizations around the world, educating herself on this issue, um, reading deeply about the kind of legality and and philosophy of right to die laws in different places. But she was also very scared, very, very scared to die um, for a number of different reasons. I mean, one, just just the idea of leaving life scared her. She um, 
she wanted to live. She, despite, I think, herself had hopes for some sort of improvement. But also she was influenced in various ways by her upbringing, which was partly religious. And she felt like she hadn't really suffered enough yet, that somehow she had to suffer more to deserve her death. And this is something that, in fact, I heard from plenty of palliative care physicians, this vague idea that there's something redemptive and healing and conclusive about suffering at the end of life, that if we short-circuit this period of -of end-of-life suffering, we will lose something profound. Um, And Maya certainly felt that. But eventually she did qualify to die at a clinic in Switzerland. Switzerland is really the only place in the world that will let foreigners fly in for an assisted death at one of several death clinics. Um, And Maya qualified to die there on the grounds of having MS, even though she wasn't within, you know, a short span of her final death. And I, I really got to know her over the course of five years or so as she struggled with whether or not to die and how to die and when to die and and whether to go to Switzerland. Um, and her uncertainty was very challenging. And sometimes her certainty was very challenging because, um, because she would lose it later. And so I followed her and, you know, I, I followed my usual protocol, which is, you know, always to remind people that I'm interested in the journey and not in any specific end. I would never want the fact that I'm following someone to nudge them towards any specific choice. After a couple years of getting to know Maya, I, I was finally able to speak to her father who told me, I don't want my daughter to die to give you a good ending for your book. And that was really striking. And I said, I hope she wouldn't too. But um, but Maya is still living. So it was important for me to tell her story in part because, you know, I wanted I wanted to, to follow people who are uncertain. I think if Maya had been able to get an assisted death in New Mexico with a doctor's with a doctor, um, you know, she, she may have already done it. Hello, everyone. We thought we'd take just a quick little break and thank you all so much for listening to the We Croak podcast and a special shout out to those of you who support us on Patreon. And if you're not a supporter yet, it's actually a really exciting time to come on board. We have a brand new tier level. At this tier, you get death cards, 50 poems from 50 monks written on the eve of their passing from one world to another. It's a deck entirely of death poems, like a tarot card deck, except every card is death. And yet, each card supremely unique. And on that note, let's get back to the conversation at hand. Why do you think she became so obsessed with wanting to have a legal assisted death in the United States as opposed to flying to Switzerland? 
I mean, I think part of it was just like limited to the experience. You know, technically you can go to Switzerland. It would be a big financial stretch for, for Mia and her family to facilitate that. And it involves flying into Zurich and having this strange death in this strange foreign clinic, not a particularly nice clinic, um, you know, with a doctor that you've, you know, you met the day before. Um, she was also um, turned off from the Switzerland idea because she knew that she would have to die sooner than she really wanted to. So to be able to access the clinic in Switzerland, she would have to be well enough to get on a plane and make the journey and, you know, agree to the conditions. She would have to have a lot of strength. She couldn't do what she sort of wanted to do, which was live as long as she could comfortably and then die when she was sort of too weak to go on. She would have to act earlier. And a lot of people I interviewed for this book were struggling with that question of when to die. They knew they had to be able to do it themselves, to be strong enough to end their lives. But they wanted to live, but they didn't know when they would lose their strength. There's no moment a doctor can predict on this day you're going to, say, lose the ability to lift your hands or lose the ability to swallow medication or you're going to lose, you know, you're going to have semi-lucid moments. So she really struggled with that. And then I think also, you know, most people are normal people. They've lived normal lives and they don't want to break the law. They don't want to contact drug dealers. They don't want to do something weird like fly to some freaky clinic in Switzerland. They just want a normal life and a normal death. Um, and and so I think that that applied to Maya. One of the things that so disturbed me about Maya's story is she was young and in the story it really seemed like she she wanted to live. However, she'd been impoverished by her disease and the American healthcare system and insurance system, mm-hmm. which uh, started her on treatments way too late mm-hmm. and also uh, kept the best treatments away from her because they were too expensive. Mm-hmm. And all of MS at, that, at her stage had crippling fatigue and she was spending all of her time and, you know, stressful insurance conversations. And meanwhile, she was, you know, losing mobility in more and more pain, like, you know, incontinence was coming in, all these things. And it felt like if we could just fix our healthcare system, that Maya is someone who would never consider mm. this option until much later. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I'm really glad you you raised that because Maya's story involved money in the way that a lot of people's stories do. And and that part of the conversation, especially in the United States, is absent from most reporting on the right to die. You know, I'll read an article in the New York Times and it's this nice couple and this person's very sick and they make this completely rational choice. And there's never really an acknowledgement that They've existed in a healthcare system that led them to that point. And what did they have or, or not have up until then? And what are their motivations now? So yes, Maya had a hell of a time with the American healthcare system. She um, had a really hard time qualifying for disability, even though she was too sick to work. 
um, as her doctor told me, one of the early symptoms of MS is this MS fatigue, which is absolutely crippling. And he said that insurance companies are really resistant to recognize that as a valid cause for disability. Sometimes he says insurance companies will send agents to kind of stake out his patient's home. And if they happen after three weeks to summon enough strength to get up and go to the grocery store, well, they'll be photographed in here. That's proof that they're, they don't need to be on disability. Um, Maya had trouble getting access to the drugs she needed, so um, her doctor explains that the, the 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 really the best drugs that he thought would be most effective to her were sort of in this special insurance class, and so what he needed to do was prescribe her worse drugs that he didn't think would work very well, let her stay on them, let her do poorly on them, prove that she'd done poorly on them, and then get her onto these better drugs. Um, you know, all the while she'll she'll be declining. Um, and then there's, there was just the fact that she was living on very little money and was very anxious about how to make sure she would have caregivers, qualified caregivers who, um, could help her as she lost capability. And that definitely played into her calculation. I mean, I think it was both. It was both the, the kind of philosophical urge to end her suffering, but also, you know, she admitted that if she had more money, the situation would be different. She met a woman with multiple sclerosis who had a lot of resources, who had this sort of round-the-clock team of engaged and wonderful aides who helped her with voice recognition software and helped her kind of stay connected to the world. And Maya wondered whether she would want to die if she had that too or knew that she could have it. But when I asked questions... I, I found myself often tempted to ask hypothetical questions like this. Well, if you had this, if you had that, if the system gave you that, and she was kind of impatient with those questions. Like, I don't, I don't have it. I'm never going to. Yeah. Ooh, it just makes me feel like we live in such a brutal country. Yeah, but I think money plays into all sorts of these stories in ways that aren't always as dramatic, you know? So I met one palliative care physician who offers assisted death in California. And he was telling me about a patient who wanted, you know, she qualified to die under the California law. She was terminally ill, but she was probably going to die a few months before she really wanted to because her care was so expensive and she wanted to leave her savings to her daughter who was struggling financially. And so she made the calculation that it just made sense for her to give up these few months of life so that her daughter would have this bigger pool of funding. And that's a calculation that she made within the law. Now, when we look at California and Oregon data on, on the right to die, we see all sorts of statistics on why people are choosing assisted death. You know, this many people you know, want to preserve their dignity. This many people want to preserve their autonomy. We're not seeing any data that looks at financial motivations. Probably the doctors aren't asking questions about that. Also, who talks to their doctor about financial concerns? Um, so I think we have this very tidy, very medical understanding of even within the law why people choose assisted dying, and it doesn't capture the whole story at all. Money often plays a role in this. Yeah, and it was a part of the story of your the, your next reported story on Deborah, mm -hmm. the dementia patient mm -hmm. who took her life early, and part of her motivation, although there were other parts, was she wanted her money to go to her charity of choice, um, you know, saving dogs, uh -huh. um, humane treatment of dogs, rather than 
to be kept alive as some, I think she thought of herself as like a future vegetable kept alive expensively in some um, nightmarish state institution. Yeah. Legacy is important to people. So yes, this woman, Deborah, I followed, she um, was diagnosed early with dementia. It was kind of approaching a moderate stage. She was certainly motivated to die because of her dementia. She did not want to lose herself to the disease. She did not want to end up in a situation where she might be suffering, but wouldn't be able to communicate that she was suffering or do anything about it. But also there was money. You know, she risked her house being foreclosed on her and her husband had taken out a second mortgage to pay for medical bills, um, like many older people do. And, and when he died, she realized that she was at risk of losing her home. And yeah, she, she hated the idea of having worked so hard her whole life. She was really proud of having been kind of like the first woman in her family to have a good job. She hated the idea of all the money she'd saved, even though it wasn't that much, being wasted on a nursing home she didn't want to be in. She she wanted it to go to the Oregon Humane Society, and it, and it did, and she and she did take her life. Um, she wanted to help dogs like all the ones she loved. So yeah, that again, that's money playing into the situation, but it's not the most obvious element of her story. Um, and I think it's, it's much easier for people to assume that people are making strictly medical choices. So I, I want to talk about one aspect of Deborah's story that mm-hmm. I still find a little unnerving and disturbing. In most cases, you know, it seems pretty understandable. She had dementia. She looked toward, you know, losing her capacity of even knowing who she was or where she was. Mm-hmm. And she made a decision. Um, Mm -hmm. but she contacted this group called the final exit network, who are these sort of clandestine doctors and other people who sort of help. There's an application process. And then if you're approved, they will, well, they, they won't use the word help, but they will sort of show the way of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a way someone can, uh, end their life themselves. That is safe, mostly painless. Etc. Etc. And mm-hmm. you write in your book that in late 2017, Janet called Deborah to tell her that she had been approved, and Deborah wept on the line. It meant everything, she said. Sometimes Deborah had allowed herself to wonder whether things were really as bad as the diagnosis made them seem, but now she wouldn't have to. The Fen doctors, the Final Exit Network doctors, had read the paperwork and thought that things were very bad indeed. Mm-hmm. And what really unnerved me about that is I was thinking of, you know, just the analogs of like all these conspiracy theories online, like, you know, flat earth network or something where someone gets a crazy idea in their head and they're able to find a group of people who affirm that belief that this is the right way to go, that, you know, things aren't. But maybe it wasn't as decisive, you know, maybe, you know, there could have been a different path that she could have taken if, you know, people she respected, doctors hadn't affirmed sort of what had been until then a kind of more waffling desire to end her life. And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about that aspect to the story? Yeah. I mean, I was hugely unnerved by Deborah's story for many reasons. I followed her very closely and spent time with her in Oregon in the months before she took her life. I last spoke to her a couple of hours before her life ended. 
Um, and I often had questions about how bad her disease was. I think her medical records said different things, but certainly, I mean, she spoke with tremendous fluidity. She was clearly really smart and bright, and we could have quite normal conversations. If I hadn't known about her diagnosis, I wouldn't necessarily have assumed anything any kind of impairment or maybe anything beyond a very minor cognitive impairment. And that definitely made me anxious. And, um, and I think her too. <laughs> um, at one point she asked me, am I much worse than when you met me? And I completely froze because I mean, when I'm interviewing people, I, the questions are rarely turned the other way. And I said, I said the truth, which was, I think you're the same. I mean, she was seeing in herself a tremendous decline that I couldn't see. And at some point, I talked to one of these activists, these Final Exit Network guides, who who was working with Deborah to make final preparations. And I was kind of peppering him with all these questions. Is, is she really that bad? Is this really getting bad? I mean, couldn't she live many years on her own as she's doing and he kind of called me out for trying to identify a point at which, I don't know, she deserved this death. <laughs> like I, I, I kind of had this, this loose sense that I hadn't even articulated to myself that somehow she had to, she had to get bad and she had to be bad enough to deserve this final ending. And of course, who am I and who was he and who is anyone to tell her that she still had good time left or, she saw her good, you know, good enough days to, to live. I mean, only she could decide when her life was unbearable to her and she was seeing enough evidence of it. But it's true that I didn't always see the evidence. And I don't know if she would have, I don't know if she would have taken her life without the help of, without the existence of this network of people helping her. It's hard to say. She had a gun holstered to the side of her wheelchair but she'd read online that um, people who try to end their lives with, with guns often fail. And she was afraid of that possibility. Um, I think it's really hard to say. But I met a lot of people who told me that they would do anything to avoid dementia, that they feared dementia more than anything in the world. And so I think, I think there are a lot of Debras in the world who are wondering what to do with a diagnosis like hers. And... I guess that her story really brought home to me, you know, I think when we tell these stories, we often go to these cases that are just people seem crystal clear and committed, uh, but we're all human beings. And, mm -hmm. you know, Deborah, at a few points in her story, was looking for affirmation that she was doing the right thing. And she found it in this final exit network. And for some reason, mm -hmm. that made me so uncomfortable. Sure, sure, I think you know, these groups have a way of, the people in them have a way of enforcing each other's joint mission. And, and certainly it meant a lot for her. It meant a lot for her to feel believed. You know, Deborah had, had a lot of different health issues over the course of her life and had certainly come to see doctors as people who didn't believe her, who were arrogant, who didn't listen. And, and these people listened and they did believe her when she said she was declining. Um, so yeah, my um, 
I squirmed my way through that reporting and I, I wanted people reading it to really feel all of that, all of that uncertainty with me. I wasn't sure Deborah would go through with things until she finally did. So this conversation is going so quickly and I'm so absorbed just like I was by your book, but I have two more questions I definitely want to ask you. Um, first, I'm just going to say the story of Adam, who, you know, um, was the, I'm so disturbed by it. I can't even formulate a question. So I'm just going to say open-ended. Is there anything you want to say about Adam? This was the point in the book where I, it was the only time in my reporting that I had to step back and remove myself from the situation. I was reporting on the case of a young man in his twenties who had a, a kind of history of mental illness, who suffered from psychosomatic pain, um, who was arguing that he should have access to physician-assisted death on the grounds of mental illness, even though he didn't have a physical illness. Um, but this was the one point in my reporting where I thought my presence in this person's life is, I am, I am, I am affecting him. I am shaping the story. I'm changing the story by being here. And he likes talking to me and he likes getting the attention of a journalist. And he likes the idea of his story being recorded for posterity and meaning something and having the symbolic importance and giving it to himself wrong. And so I, I had to stop my reporting. Um, but it's certainly, it was very trying the years I spent reporting on Adam and his family, but you know, this is an important issue. There are already a number of countries in the world that offer physician-assisted death to people who have mental but not physical illnesses, and Canada is about to become one of them. Um, Belgium and the Netherlands are others. And so Adam's story raised a lot of questions about why we maybe privilege physical over mental pain, why we, how we decide whether someone who has a mental illness is able to act in his own best interest. I mean, it's a really thorny chapter, but, um, uh, but yeah, I think it, it's, it's probably was the hardest reporting I've done in my life for sure. I believe it. <laughs> I, I could barely read it. And it was, I mean, engrossing material, but it made me so uncomfortable to even consider these important issues. And you're right. They are important. And they were highlighted as mm -hmm. that. Um, I've, you know, this podcast is a mission of talking about all the things we don't talk about enough, Ooh, starting with death, uh, but not ending there. Mm -hmm. And this really, you know, put me right up against, you know, the audacity <laughs> of that mission of saying, yeah. you know, can I look here? You know, um, can I even look at it or am I too uncomfortable? Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, so I just want to acknowledge that and uh, thank you for, you know, being someone willing to bring our attention to um, issues that are very important and absolutely not getting discussed or talked about because of our aversion to them. Uh, and I think that, mm -hmm. you know, bad things tend to happen most in places we won't look at. So thank you. And maybe yeah. that can bring more light here. Uh, the last question I have for you is, you know, you spent many years reporting this book, um, you know, both in the sense of seeing all around the world the different laws that exist, and then speaking to all sorts of different kinds of patients, uh, several of whom appear in this book, who with different stories, uh, different reasons for seeking um, uh, to end their life legally. Um, if you 
had a magic wand and could write the laws of our land, uh, where do you draw the line? Who, yeah. who has, who do you think legally should have access to a merciful death and who should not? Yeah. I mean, I think any line drawing exercise is imperfect. I do have a sense that the laws as they exist in the United States are too restrictive. Um, they have a really de- narrow definition of suffering that equates suffering with you know, terminal illness. Countries like Canada have more expansive laws. They let patients really decide when their lives become unbearable. They don't set a timeline saying, you know, you have to have only six months left. They ex- they extend that timeline to years and perhaps even decades. Um, I'm very anxious about the idea of including mental illness as a criteria for assisted death. But, um, you know, what I struggle with most is kind of the purpose of the laws themselves. I mean, by the end of the book, I was really asking myself questions about how and why these laws are administered like they are. You know, right now, assisted death is considered a medical procedure. Doctors are the ones who evaluate patients. Do they meet the eligibility criteria and write the prescription and um, attend the deaths and oversee them and then submit the reports to the state afterwards? And in a way, that makes sense. But in another way, it doesn't, because what we know about people who use the laws in the United States is that they're often dying for non-medical reasons, not because they're in terrible pain or even because they fear terrible pain, but because they want to preserve what they would call dignity or autonomy or because they want their they've lost the ability to do activities that make their lives meaningful. So if people are choosing to die for non-medical reasons, then. You know, I have to ask why doctors are the gatekeepers of this. Just because they're the people who traditionally write prescriptions, why are they the gatekeepers? Assisted death is not brain surgery. It's uh, offering up a cocktail of drugs that will kill someone within a few hours. Um, Do we need doctors to be in control? Do we need there to be strict criteria that weeds out people who deserve and don't deserve peaceful deaths? If someone is control, in control of healthcare all their lives, why do they ever arrive at a point where they lose control and have to beg and plead and fill out paperwork to get what they what they want? Um, so those are questions I'm still struggling with, and and other people are too. Which is why, in places where the law doesn't doesn't help, people find a way on their own. I have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. In America, at least, there's a lot of people who feel pretty comfortable with death as punishment. You know, capital punishment is still legal in a lot of places and holds mm-hmm. well, I guess. Um, we're pretty yeah. comfortable with unnecessary deaths that, you know, we could prevent from um, everything from gun legislation being so unrestrictive to mm-hmm. you know environmental laws and things like that like we're very comfortable with um you know externalities of you know freedom or you know being able to pollute and capitalism causing lots of deaths and that's fine why do you think we're so uncomfortable with the idea of merciful death of this person says their life has become unbearable um and believing them 
there is, I think, a kind of uniquely American aversion to talking about all this. A, a shockingly low number of Americans over 65 have ever talked to their doctor about death and dying. If you will recall the famous Sarah Palin death panel debate, um, when Sarah Palin successfully convinced many Americans that death government death panels are being set up to decide whether they live or die. I mean, that was really a, a quite like boring and technical debate about how doctors should be reimbursed for having conversations with patients about end-of-life preferences. Because until very recently, doctors weren't reimbursed for those conversations and so they didn't happen. There is something American about it. And I think part of it is that, you know, this this is a country that's been focused on extending life. Doctors here have promised for a long time that they would be able both to successfully extend life, but also to kind of do away with or at least really compress this period of infirmity so that patients, you know, people would soon be living long, healthy lives and then kind of like, boom, die in their sleep. And that is just this thing people have been promised and it's not true. And only now are we seeing that it's not true. Um, But there are certain kinds of planned death that we're comfortable with in this country. I mean, if we look at veterinary clinics, they euthanize animals routinely here. It's very common practice. It's very common for people, you know, people who are listening have probably had experiences euthanizing a beloved pet, seeing those euthanasias as acts of mercy. Um, And one of the slogans that right to die activists use that I think about all the time that they print on stickers and posters and board, you know, Bristol boards when they're going outside of, you know, parliamentary debates is, uh, I would rather die like a dog. And that's very striking because the United States spends more per capita on healthcare than any other country in the world. And over and over and over in my reporting, people were asking for a veterinary solution to their suffering. Thank you so much, Katie. This it's a, a difficult and trying conversation, but I think so worthwhile. Um, your book, uh, The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die, is available in hardcover now. And uh, what are other places that um, interested listeners can find your work? Uh, if you go to my website, you'll find some links to some pre-recorded conversations. I've reported on some of these issues around the end of life in places like the New Yorker and the New York Times, and you'll find links to those articles too. So, um, so yes, and I'm on social media, and I, I do write back, so um, get in touch. Uh, we'll have a, a link to your website in the show notes. So thank you so much again for your time today. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Katie Englehart, for joining us for this important and challenging episode of the We Croak podcast. Thanks to you, we are really living up to our promise of talking about the things that we don't talk about enough, starting with death and, in this case, ending there. We'll have links to all of her information in the show notes, and we are looking forward to seeing you all again for the next season of the We Croak podcast. And until then... We'll see you next time.